Well, as you look at that title slide of my sermon, you'll see that I've chosen a beautiful background of a coastline. Now, it's an idyllic setting of sand and cliffs and a serene and inviting place. Yet some of you, as you are looking at that picture, know that there's a background to the story of that beach because it's a background of strife and sacrifice. This is the coastline of Normandy, a, a beach that was nicknamed as or codenamed as Omaha Beach during World War II. And I'm starting my message by pointing out this picture because we're going to be looking at a different coastline today in our story as we pick back up in Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. There it says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now, it's a different coastline, as I said, but I want you to, to have this picture in your mind because maybe as you're reading that passage in Acts 13, 4, you picture this Mediterranean cruise as uh, Saul and Barnabas set out on their first missionary journey, but this was more of the picture of what the book of Acts is like. I want to remind you that this is a landing party that is going into hostile territory. Uh, they're fighting a war. We've seen that all throughout the book of Acts. The, the background of the book of Acts, it began with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and after his resurrection as he appointed his followers to go and spread the gospel. And then Jesus ascended into heaven. And as we've walked through the pages of Acts, as we've gone through these chapters, what we've seen is that it's been one of strife and suffering, one of persecution, of even death, of people like Stephen, the first Christian martyr. There's been imprisonments and other things that have happened. As we've gone through the book of Acts, it's, it's uh, been a, a time where people have laid their life on the line. And it's, it's because they faced opposition. We have an enemy called Satan, and he doesn't like the good news of the gospel to go forth. And even in our day, he's at work trying to stop that. So in those times where you as a believer face opposition and persecution, I want you to remember that this is a picture of what it is that we face. We are a landing party facing hostile territory as we try to take ground for the gospel of Jesus Christ. As uh, the gospel has spread, it's been like Satan trying to pour water on a grease fire. Instead of putting it out, he spread the message. We saw that he began in Jerusalem with the persecution, trying to shut down the church at its birth uh, after the day of Pentecost. But instead of putting it out, it just spread it. And where we are now in Acts chapter 13 is 300 miles north of Jerusalem in a city called Antioch of Syria. Last time we talked in depth about this city, it was a, a major city in terms of size and significance, being more than half a million people. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and then Alexandria of Egypt. It was along a major trade route, and so it was here that the, the cultures of Rome and Greece and Jerusalem, the Hebrew cultures, all came together. We see the cosmopolitan nature of the church in Acts 13.1 as it says, uh, now, there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manon, who had been brought, brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Now, Barnabas, you'll recall, was a Jew who was from Cyprus, a place that we're about to see is the first stop on this missionary journey as they begin spreading the gospel. Uh, Simon was also a Jew, but he's, he has a, a Latin nickname, which tells us uh, that he ran in Roman circles. The name Niger means black, and so he was probably from Africa. Uh, so was his counterpart, Lucius, who was from Cyrene. This is up in the area of modern-day Libya. Now, you'll recall back in Acts 11.20, we saw that it was men from this area that came in and originally planted the gospel. And in that sermon, uh, we saw that the way that they spread the gospel throughout the city 
was not from a pulpit like this one where Peter had preached uh, there in the temple on the day of Pentecost. The way that these men and women went about preaching the good news of the gospel in that city were through pulpits that were the counters where they worked. It was behind desks as they went about their daily business at school. It was the conversations they had with strangers on the street, something that God calls each of us to do. As we looked back at history, we saw that that city, that major city, had been turned upside down by the gospel, that 250 years later, when the Council of Nicaea took place, there were more than 200,000 Christians in that city that had started with just a handful of believers who were faithful to share the good news of the gospel. And as we look at the, the list of names that are used there, they were not just common everyday people uh, working in the, the corner markets. They were people who had also been placed in positions of power. This man, Manon, we saw was described as being brought up with the ruling, fam the ruling family. You recall the Greek word syntrophis that's used there spoke of either a person who had been raised from uh, just a, a little child up as the, the playmate and the companion of Herod Antipas, this ruler, uh, or it could be used of a, of a stepbrother, so he could have been adopted into the royal family. And we saw that these two men, while they were raised together, they, they took two separate roads. Herod the Tetrarch was also Herod Antipas. He was the guy that beheaded John the Baptist. He was the guy who oversaw one of the trials of Jesus at the crucifixion. So he was an antagonist trying to kill off the church. And then you have his, his childhood friend or maybe his, his brother who was an evangelist, who was speaking the truth and pointing people to Christ, trying to build up the church. And then we have Saul. Saul, we see in verse 9, is also known as Paul. This is the Apostle Paul in the Bible. Now, his story is one that has been unfolding throughout uh, the book of Acts, and I just want to remind you a little bit of the background because in a moment it's going to come back later in our passage. Saul was that Pharisee uh, who was in the upper echelon of the religious elite. He was a student of the, the best of the rabbis of the day. He was involved in the Sanhedrin. You'll recall Back in Acts 7 and 8, when the trial of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, took place, uh, Saul was there. And he was the one that went out and he watched over the garments of people as they murdered Stephen, as they stoned him to death. Paul gave hearty approval to the, the killing of this, this Christian. And then he went to the Jewish authorities and he said, I want, I want warrants of arrest, I want letters to take that will allow me to go to Damascus, where some of the Christians had fled to the north to arrest them and bring them back into Jerusalem to stand trial. And then as they were doing this, Saul, as he was on the road to Damascus, seeking to uh, go into that city, the resurrected Lord appeared to him. And Jesus Christ uh, came to Saul and he appeared and, and blinded him. He literally knocked him off his high horse. And you recall that Saul, as he peered into the light and he heard, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who is it? And it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And Saul became a believer. Now he had been blinded by the light. He was brought into the city where later this man Ananias came in and healed his sight. And Paul now as a believer became an evangelist and was spreading the message of the church. We're going to see what Paul does in a moment. But before we get there, we need to get him on the journey. So here you see a map of this first missionary journey. And they started out here in Antioch of Syria. Up on the top left of the screen, you see Antioch of Pisidian. That's one of the cities they'll go to. That was a little city, uh, not this half a million place we've just been described talking about. 
Now he went down to the coastline to where the port was there in Seleucia, and then he takes a ferry across the ocean. And as he uh, goes across the Mediterranean Sea there, he comes to this island of Cyprus. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 5, where it says, When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. Now, the John that is mentioned here is John Mark. If you look ahead in your Bible to Acts 15.37, you'll see it says, John, who is called Mark. Uh, This is a guy that if you read Colossians 4.10, it tells you that he was a cousin of Barnabas. So there's a family relation. Uh, John Mark, the, the church in Antioch, it says, commissioned, laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul and sent them out. But this cousin comes along as a helper. Now, his hometown was Jerusalem there to the south. In Acts 12, 12, we saw where the church was gathering in, his, in uh, the home of Mary. This is his mother. There are multiple Marys in the Bible. This isn't Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is uh, his mother. And, but we know that because his cousin and, and other relatives would have lived on Cyprus, over the years, I'm sure that Mark made several journeys to the island. It was a place that was familiar to him. And he goes along on this missionary journey. Now, as we read, it says uh, they reached this northeastern city of Salamis, and it says they began preaching first in the synagogues. Synagogues, plural. I want you to notice that, because what the Bible tells us in Romans 1.16 is this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I want you to remember at this point in the book of Acts, what we have is... Uh, the gospel has been moving in the Gentile circles. And it doesn't mean that the Jews have been set aside. There are are lots of well-meaning Christians, even pastors that I've talked to who have said, the Jews don't need to accept Jesus as their Messiah. Brothers and sisters, that is wrong. The Bible is very clear that we are all sinners, that we've all fallen short. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Jew and Gentile. It says, being justified, how? As a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Jews also need to receive Jesus Christ. The word Christ means Messiah. The Hebrew word is Hamashiach. They need to receive Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. God has not set aside Israel. He has a plan for Israel. There is still a plan that is to unfold with Israel. But the Jews are not automatically, by nature of being God's chosen people, brought into the kingdom. They have to come through personal faith, and Jesus is their personal Messiah. And so if you have a non-believing Jewish friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, uh, brothers and sisters, pray for them and share the good news of the gospel with them. I want to remind you that the people who are sharing the gospel in the synagogues are Jews. Barnabas is a hometown Jew from Cyprus. Paul, who was previously Saul, a religious rabbi uh, high up in the establishment, said the Jews need to come to faith in Christ. All of us are sinners. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God, Jews included. The Bible tells us in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That means separation from God. When we die the first physical death, then comes the second death that Revelation 20 describes as the lake of fire. The good news is it goes on to tell us that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here we see that gospel message is being proclaimed. The word gospel just means good news. They're sharing the good news of the gospel, first in the synagogues, 
And then look at what else happens in Acts, 16, uh, Acts 13, 6 through 8. It says, When they had gone through the whole island as far as Pappas, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Eliamus, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, Pappas is the, the capital of Cyprus, and we see that the Roman official there is a guy named Sergius Paulus, because we're talking about the Apostle Paul. I'm just going to call this guy the proconsul for a moment. Uh, but what I want you to see is that he's described as being an intelligent man. Uh, when, you talk to believe, when you talk to people today, maybe you've had this experience. Have you ever been told as a Christian that you've checked your brain at the door? That uh, people will say to you, I can't believe that you still believe the Bible uh, isn't more than a book of fairy tales. I mean, how can you as a, a smart person believe in that stuff? Well, what we see here is we're dealing with a man who is described as being intelligent, literally brilliant. We see this is a guy who is in the upper echelons of society and power. He's called a proconsul. Now, as you read through your Bible, you'll see where Pontius Pilate is called the procurator. A procurator is a governor who was appointed by the emperor. A proconsul is also a governor, but he's appointed by the Roman Senate. So what that tells us is this is a guy who's not only smart, He's a guy who's trusted because the, the Roman government has said, we want you to be the guy in charge of this region. So the Senate has appointed him as the governor. He's not a political puppet or appointee. He's, he's got the, the power of Rome behind him. Now, as we look at what's happening, uh, the governor hears that uh, Barnabas and, and Saul and uh, Mark are on the island sharing the gospel. So he invites them to the palace. And as he comes, it says there's another guy there who's named Bar-Jesus. Now, the word Bar means son of. You hear about Bar Mitzvahs, son of a mitzvah. Uh, this is Bar-Jesus. Now, he's not son of Jesus of Nazareth. We've already seen there are multiple Marys, and maybe you've met people in, in our day who are named Jesus or Jesus. Uh, not everybody who's named Jesus is the one that is Jesus of Nazareth. So, in fact, we know he's not the son of Jesus of Nazareth, because as you look at verse 10, Paul calls him the son of the devil. Now, we'll come to that here in a moment. Now, another name he goes by is Elimus, which means a sorcerer or wise man. And this probably points to his profession. Maybe you've read the story of the birth of Christ, and it talks about the wise men or the magi who came from the east, from the orient. And this is the root word magos. So it means he's a wise man. He's a counselor. Uh, and we see he's a counselor to the governor, this proconsul that is there in the city. Now, as Paul and, and Barnabas are invited into the palace to share the good news of the message, we see that this guy's threatened, and he tries to shut it down. Look at verses uh, 9 through 12 as this battle for the soul of the governor ensues. It says, But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him, and he said, you are full of deceit, all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Well, there's how you win friends and influence enemies, right? <laughs> they come into the palace. Here's the guy who's the counselor to the governor. And Paul points at him and unloads. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind. 
not see the sun for a time, and immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. So you're the governor. You're sitting here. You watch this throwdown taking place. Uh, Iliamus probably stands up to say something to Paul, and Paul, through God's power, strikes the guy blind. All of a sudden, he's reaching around. Somebody help me. I can't see. And what is the governor's response to this? We'll look at the next verse. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. You know, we live in a day where tolerance, where everyone's truth is to be held in equal value, right? The, the greatest personal foul you can commit in our day is to tell somebody that their truth is wrong. Have you ever had that experience? People say, I'm, I'm not feeling very safe right now. You're, you're, you know, kind of coming with aggression. You're threatening me. What makes your truth better than mine? I've had people say to you, how can you be so arrogant to claim there is only one way to heaven? Do you know why we can be those who say there is only one way to heaven? Because Jesus Christ said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. As Christians, we are those who have heard from Jesus Christ that there is only one way home to heaven. I want you to imagine for a moment you're walking down a road. And as you're on this road, you're kind of lost and you're not really sure which way to go. And you're approaching this, this place where there are multiple roads headed off in all directions. And as you're walking along this road trying to figure out which way to go, uh, you notice there's a crowd of people there. And you go, oh, good. There are people there. I'm going to go and ask directions. Now, as you get closer to the crowd, you notice that everyone there is dead except for one person. Who are you going to ask for directions? (laughs) Are you going to ask the people who are dead or are you going to talk to the person who's alive? Now, I say this with all due respect, but I I don't apologize either for speaking the truth here. As you look at all of the religions of the world, Muhammad of Islam, the one who was supposed to be the prophet of, uh, of God, he's dead. You look at Buddhism, Confucius, those men are dead. You look at Mormonism, Joseph Smith is dead. You look at uh, Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard is dead. You go through the list of every religion in the world and every one of their founders, every one of their prophets, they're all dead. Jesus Christ died as well. But Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We've seen in the book of Acts more than 500 witnesses saw him walking around. There were all kinds of people who testified, eyewitness accounts that we saw him. We're seeing the power of God at work here as Paul is able to blind somebody. And so when, when you don't know which way to go and you're, you're asking these guides, I'm going to talk to the guy who's alive, the one who proved he was who he said he was, the son of God who is alive, and who says, Roger, there's only one way home to heaven, and that is through me. That's the road I'm going to take. And when other people need to know the directions home, I'm going to give them the directions from the one who is alive, Jesus Christ. Now, you're going to find people who label that hate, You're going to find people who say that's arrogance or intolerance. But I don't see it that way. I see that as being what it really is, love. It's love by we're saying this person is lost and without Christ, they have a place they're going that is not a place that we want anyone to go, even our worst enemies. We should not want to go to that place of separation called hell. It should make us care too much to be silent or water down the truth or avoid speaking the truth because we're afraid that somebody's not going to like us or like what we say. It's been said that you can be courageous or comfortable. 
but you can't be both at the same time. You can be courageous or comfortable, but rarely at the same time. I want you to think in terms of a soldier or a policeman who will put themselves in the line of fire. I want you to think about a fireman who will run into a burning building to save uh, a person who is trapped there. I want you to think of a mom who's willing to run out into oncoming traffic to snatch a child uh, out of the way. I want you to think of an average swimmer as a rushing river is sweeping someone away that will jump in to save a perfect stranger. What is it that makes these people do such a heroic act, put their own lives on the line? It's the sure knowledge that if they do not act, they know that that person will be lost, that that person will lose their life. And all around us, there are people who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And knowing they are lost and knowing what the Bible says their eternal destiny is, men and women, boys and girls who are brothers and sisters in Christ, that should drive us out of the doors of this church and into our community around us to share the good news of the gospel. Not worrying about whether people think it's politically correct or not. As Paul sees this proconsul who is lost, and he sees Elymas who's trying to block him from coming to faith, Paul doesn't go, oh, well, let's sit around and talk about it. He comes strong. He calls the guy the son of the devil. He, he blinds him. He, he, he chooses courage over comfort. Now, you've heard me say many times that we're to share the truth in love, and you're thinking, well, that's not really a loving thing. I think Paul was a little bit out of line here. I want you to look at the passage and see what it says. It says, he was led by the Holy Spirit. As Paul is speaking these words, it's not this resident anger in him that's bubbling over. This is the Holy Spirit that is directing him. It's along the lines of the words that uh, Jesus spoke in in Matthew 13, 6. There Jesus said, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a, a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. You see, Elymas was trying to stand in the way of somebody coming to faith in Christ. And so Paul opposes him. It is the Holy Spirit who speaks through him. It's the Holy Spirit who blinds this man temporarily. It's not Paul. Paul doesn't walk up and tag him in the eye. Uh, It says there's this, this darkness that falls over him. Now, in Luke 9.54, there's an instance where some of the disciples were facing opposition to the gospel. And they said, Lord... Do you want us to call down fire and wipe these guys out? You remember that passage? How many of us, when we face opposition or, or we have somebody at our door, uh, Saturday I had Jehovah's Witness knock on my door again. I, I actually like it when they come to my door. Uh, they don't usually like it when they leave, but um, I don't come out and, and just run them over. I start out asking questions, and I walk through, and as they make statements, I say, show me that. And, well, do you know the Bible says, and the Greek says, oh, that's not what it says. And, yes, it, okay, so I, here's the Greek Bible, show me. What is that? That's the Greek Bible. Oh, you know, now, but I don't come with this, oh, who can I smoke today attitude. What I come with is, hey, I appreciate the fact that you're here at my door sharing what you think is truth. I want you to see what truth really is. And this is, this is Paul, you know, when you look at these disciples here in Luke 9, 54, who says, hey, can we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Jesus responds by rebuking them. He says, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. 
Now, in terms of that context, whenever you look at a passage, I tell you, you always read the context. I told you there's opposition to the gospel. So why does Jesus give Paul a green light to come strong, but he tells these guys, you're wrong in the way you're approaching this? Well, it's because of their, their, their heart, attitude, what's happening behind the scenes. Because as you look at the context, in Luke 9.46, it tells us the disciples were arguing among themselves as to which were the greatest. And then the next thing you see is that the, they were being turf shepherds. You know what a turf shepherd is? It's a person who protects their little slice of the pie. And, and we, we see here in Luke 9.49, it says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to what? Prevent him because he doesn't follow along with us. Hey, he's not in our little group. He's competition. And Jesus said, hey, whoever's not against you is for you. And then finally they say, do we get to smoke these guys? Do we get to call down fire? And that's where Jesus rebukes them. So the next time you find yourself wanting to come and power up on somebody, I want you to stop for a moment and check your heart. I want you to ask yourself, why, why do I feel kind of this anger? Why, why am I coming this way? Is it because you've been personally hurt? Is there something going on in your life that's driving you? Or are you being a turf shepherd? Are you saying, hey, I'm going to lose my place of influence or there's, there's going to be people who are going to move away into that group instead of mine? And if those are the things that are driving you, then you need to, you need to just humbly say, God, I, I need you to speak through me or... Uh, Lord, just, just close my mouth at this moment. Now, as we look at the passage, it was Elimus who was being this turf shepherd. Remember, he had the ear of the, the governor. He was the counselor. And he's been saying, hey, here is what the truth is. We're told that he's a Jewish false prophet. He claims to speak for God. He's a prophet, he says. He says, I'm a follower of Jehovah, of Yahweh. I'm a, I'm a Jewish believer in the true God. And what he was trying to do was block out Paul and Barnabas because he didn't want to lose this, uh, this guy's ear. What we're reading about here is an illustration of the parable of the tares in uh, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24 and following. There it talks about how God will sow seeds of wheat. It's speaking of the, the gospel and it says God will sow these seeds. And then Satan comes along and he sows these tares or, wheat, or weeds. And as the two plants start to grow, initially you can't tell what's, what's the wheat and what's the, the weeds. And he says if you go in and you start trying to uproot the things, you're going to pull up some of the, the good fruit. And so you're, you're just supposed to leave it alone until you can identify which is which. And what's happening is you have the governor. And he's sitting here and he's watching this throwdown between these two guys who both claim to speak for God. And he's going, well, I know Elimus, and I've heard about Paul and Barnabas and they're both saying different things. Which one is the wheat and which one is the weed? And that's why God allows this guy to get struck blind because suddenly God says, I'll show you who represents me. And it says that the result is his eyes are opened. He says, oh, this is the weed and that's the wheat. And that's why he comes to faith. Now, as all this is taking place, there's something else that we see happening. Because after he believes and places his faith in Jesus Christ there in verse 12, if we go back for a moment to verse 9, it says Saul will now be referred to as Paul. And as we go forward in the book of Acts, Saul will now go by the name Paul, the Greek name. He's, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. So he's not coming with his credentials as Saul, the Hebrew Pharisee. He's coming as Paul. 
And, and there's only going to be two other times he uses his name Saul. One is in Acts 22.7 and another in Acts 26.14. And both of those places, it's when Saul is giving his testimony, when he's pointing to his former way of life as this Jewish leader that he uses that name. Now, another change we see in relation to Paul is the change in order. As you look at our passage, it says Barnabas and Saul were commissioned by the church. Who's first? Barnabas. He's, he's the leader. He's the team leader. The church sends them out. All through the book, Barnabas has been the front guy. He's been the one who came alongside Paul when he first came to faith and spoke for him. He's encouraged him. He's called him from Tarsus to uh, Antioch. So it's Barnabas and Saul. And then we see Saul, who is also called Paul. But as you look at verse 13, what does it tell you? Paul and his companions. Who were his companions? Barnabas and John Mark, the cousins. If you were Barnabas, if you were the guy whose name had been first on the letterhead, who was uh, first on the door as the managing partner, as you were the guy who was designated as the leader, and suddenly somebody came and moved your name down the org chart and moved somebody else ahead, how would you respond? Is this going to be a blow to your ego? Are you going to say, wait a minute, this isn't right. I'm the leader. Paul, what are you doing? You're, you're you know, getting ahead of yourself. and on it. But we don't see that, do we? What we see is that Barnabas, uh, simply as a servant of Christ, moves aside willingly. He says, this has never been about me. This has been about the gospel going forth. And if God has ordained at this point that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, is to take the first uh, order and to be the new leader, I will willingly move aside. Now, Paul had that attitude as well. Later in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. You see, Paul wasn't running around saying, I've got to make little Pauls. I've got to build my kingdom. What he was saying is what I do and what I teach is to point people to Jesus Christ. And he says, if I can live my life and, and be a person who represents Christ in such a way that as you look at me, you see him and you become like him, that's what I want. Many of you have heard of a missionary named Corey Ten Boom. Uh, the Ten Boom family was known for their work that they did during the dark days of the Nazi Holocaust. As they were imprisoning Jews and taking them to the concentration camps, the Ten Boom family was, was hiding uh, as many Jews as they could in their home and helping them get to safety. And there came a point where the, the Germans found out about it and they had the Ten Booms arrested and thrown into the concentration camp. And uh, many in that family perished in the, the horrors of the Holocaust. But Corey survived. And later, there was a, a movie made about their life after the book The Hiding Place was written. And as she became more and more famous, uh, she was asked one day by a person if it was difficult to remain humble. And this is how Corey responded. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey... And everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises. She said, do you think that for one moment it ever entered the head of the donkey that it was for him? <laughs> she continues, if I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in his glory, I give him all the praise and the honor. Friends, if you want to be used by God, if you want to be used for God, and you're worried about whether your name is first in the org chart, 
listed first in the team uh, leadership or any other way that you're saying this is about me holding on to my slice of the pie, me being a turf shepherd, uh, then you need to remember not only what Corey Tin Boom said, but you need to read uh, the book of Numbers in chapter 22, 28, because there you'll see that God used a literal donkey to speak for him. That was the story where Balaam, uh, you know, he, the, the prophet was trying to do things, and God had a, a literal donkey speak for him. Read through the rest of the Bible and see what else has happened. The people God uses, murderers like King David, doubters like Moses, liars like Abraham, former prostitutes like Rahab the harlot, who is listed in the genealogy of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Uh, look for people like Saul, who is now Paul, a former prosecutor. Every one of these men and women is a story of God's amazing grace, where God not only reached down and saved us from our sins, but then he said, I want you to be a part of my work. I want to use you to be the person who is spreading the gospel. 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven through 30 tells us, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. You see the story of God's grace is seen in that God chooses us and then he uses us. And as we look at what is happening here, uh, as you listen to this list of those that God used in the past, maybe you're saying, well, you know, Roger, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite a murderer and adulterer like David, but I, you know, I've done some other things. But, you know, what, what if I failed? Okay, what, what if God has given me an opportunity in the past and I bailed on him or I failed him? Is God done with me? Can I be used by God? I want you to look at Acts 13, 13. Because in Acts 13, 13, it tells us, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Pappas, and they came to Perga and Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So they've evangelized the island of Cyprus. And they now get on another boat, and they head up to the coastline. And as they go to this coastline, it's like that Normandy landing craft, because where they're going, they faced opposition from those like Eliamus, this, this false prophet. But as they reach that coastline, the severity of opposition is going to go through the roof. That, that coastline is mosquito-infested. As you read through the New Testament, you see where Paul had malaria. This is where he contracts it. When you read about the church in Galatia being founded and reached, they're high up in a mountain range. They have to scale literal peaks in order to proceed with the gospel. There's going to be all kinds of opposition. And we see that as this is happening, uh, it says John left them and returned to Jerusalem. At, at the time of greatest need, when opposition was getting harder, Mark, their helper, leaves them. And he returns home to Jerusalem where his mom's house is. Now, reading that, it seems kind of innocuous, like, well, okay, his, his time of service was done, he headed home. But if you flip over to Acts 15, 38, what it tells us there is it says, Paul says he deserted. He deserted. He went AWOL. This wasn't, okay, go ahead and go home, John Mark. This was, no, it's not time for you to leave, and he did it anyway. He cut and ran, and he left the work unfinished is what it tells us. Now, the text doesn't tell us why. Was it that as John Mark, this younger man, he, he just got homesick? Hey, I've been away from mom and familiar settings for too long. 
Was it the rigors of the trip were getting harder? Some of you have been on missions trips, and you know the first day or two, woo, this is great, and about day three or four, you're tired and you're dirty, and cross-culturally, things are going differently, and, and you start to get on each other's you know, backs, and, and you're thinking, this just isn't what I signed on for. It's not fun anymore. Or was it what we already talked about? Was it that Barnabas, who had been the team leader, as he moves into the second slot, and as he's not even named, he's, he's simply called one of his companions. I mean, there's Barnabas, the leader, and now his name isn't even in, mentioned. He's just one of Paul's companions. And so you've got the cousin who is saying, hey, this is, I, I'm going to carry the animosity for, for Barnabas. Maybe Barnabas isn't mad, but I am. Or maybe as a young man, he's saying things are being done differently, and I, I just can't submit to the new leadership, the new direction. I can't be a part of the team. What is it that causes the break? We're not necessarily told. But we know it wasn't a a nice parting of the ways. There was such a severe break in the relationship that as you look at Acts 15, 36 through 40 that we'll come to later in the series, you're going to find that a second missionary journey is heading out. And John Mark shows up and he says, hey, I want to sign up and go on this trip. And do you know what Paul says? No, you're not. And Barnabas says, hey, I think we should take John Mark along. And Paul says, no, we're not taking them. And we're told that there arose such a sharp disagreement between these two godly men, these guys who had been together as a missionary team for more than 15 years at that point in Acts 15. You know what happens? They split. It tells us Paul takes Silas and he heads off on one trip. And John Mark goes with Barnabas on a separate trip. Now, as the story continues, what we'll find is that Barnabas encourages And he mentors Mark. And this young man who had failed, uh, fails forward. He learned from the past. He grew. He matured. He was willing to submit himself to the leadership of Paul and others. And John Mark becomes a choice servant of God. He becomes an evangelist. He becomes a pastor of a church. And if you've ever read the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament, he's the man that God uses to write that New Testament book for us. And the relationship with Paul And this young man is restored as well because as you read through the New Testament in Colossians 4.10, it tells us that Mark was helping Paul when Paul was imprisoned in that passage. And then later when Paul is in yet another prison and he's facing death, these are the words that that Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4.11. Only Luke, this is Dr. Luke who's written Acts. He says, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service. So here you have this broken and discouraged young man who says, God is done with me. I made a mistake. I, I deserted. I disqualified myself. And because of the grace of God and because of a godly mentor like Barnabas who came alongside and said, listen, God's a God of the second and the third and the 30th and the 500th and 5,000th chance if you need it. He was able to step back into service and to be used by God. As you think about those people that God has put into your life, are there any John Marks around you? Are there any men and women who have failed you or failed others? And they're discouraged and they're thinking that my, my usefulness is done. Maybe it's one of you this morning that feels like John Mark. Maybe you've made mistakes and you're saying, I've disqualified myself and God doesn't want anything more to do with me. 
That's the lies of our enemy called Satan. He's called the father of lies. He's called the destroyer. He's the one who wants you to think that God is done with you and he's put you on a shelf. But that's not how God operates. So we come to the communion table today. We're reminded of who our God is and what he does. As we come to this communion table, what we're reminded of is God's great grace for us. It's how every one of us who is here is a, is a failure. How every one of us here has failed because the Bible says God's standard of perfection, God's standard is perfection. Remember, it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all made mistakes. We've all fallen short. But God didn't put us on the shelf. He didn't sideline us and say, I'm done with you. What he did for us is found in Romans 5.8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Christ died for us. When did Christ die for us? It says, while we were still sinners. It doesn't say when we got our life kind of cleaned up, when we came to church, when we started to be respectful, when we sobered up, when we stopped doing some of the things, then God said, okay, maybe we can start to work with you. It says Christ died for us while we were still sinners, while we were at our worst, while we were in rebellion, while we were far from God. In a moment, you're going to get two elements. One is a piece of bread and one is a cup of juice. And yet what those elements represent for us is the bread is the body of Christ. It's what Jesus Christ did when he came and he went to the cross and he gave his life as a sacrifice for us. And the cup represents his blood, which was used to wash away our sins, to make us, uh, to hit the reset button and make us white as snow. And if you're here this morning and you're feeling like a failure, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, God can't use me, if Roger, if you only knew my mistakes, friends, God knows every one of our mistakes, mine included. And he chooses to use us. But first we have to turn from our sin and turn to him as our savior. We have to accept his gift of grace and accept his son as our savior. So if you're here today and you've never come to faith in Christ, I invite you to do so today. As the elements are passed, I want you to take the bread and say, God, I'm accepting your son as my savior. I want you to take the cup and say, this represents your blood that has washed away my sins. Just hold those elements. We're going to take them together in a moment as a church. But I want you to remember that God has hit the reset button. He's not done with you yet. And that applies to the rest of us here who maybe have come to faith in Christ but have, have backslid and have fallen away, have done things that, that aren't honoring to God. God says at this moment he wants us to stop, to confess our sins, to come with clean hands and hearts as we come to this table. Men, will you distribute the elements and we'll take them in a moment.
in our passage we saw where Herod the Tetrarch was mentioned. And I told you that he was the governor who had John the Baptist beheaded. You recall there was a time where John the Baptist was in the wilderness preaching, preparing people to come for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. And as he saw Jesus Christ coming and John was preparing to baptize him, he pointed Christ out in the crowd and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What we hold in our hand is a, a remembrance of the Lamb of God, the one who came to be our sacrifice, the one who went to the cross to pay that penalty of death that we owe. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, eat it in remembrance of him. And here we have a cup of juice. Again, it points us to the sacrifice of the Son of God, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sins. There had to be a perfect and permanent sacrifice, that Lamb of God that John spoke of that was coming. And as the blood of Jesus was shed, it washed away my sins and yours. The blood of Christ, drink it in remembrance of him. Join me, please, as we close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word that points us to the living word, Jesus Christ. The one that John 1, 1 tells us in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And it goes on to tell us how that word that took on flesh and blood so that he could come to take away our sins. We thank you, Jesus, for your great love your love that died for us while we were far from you as sinners in rebellion. We thank you, God, for that gift of amazing grace. And as those who have received the the grace and the good news of the gospel, we're amazed as well that you continue to use us as your men and women, your boys and girls, your hands and feet to go into the marketplace, the schools, our neighborhoods, and share the good news of the gospel message. So as we prepare to leave today, God, would you send us out filled with your spirit, filled with your message in our minds and would we be bold enough choosing courage over comfort to share the good news of our messiah jesus christ and the gift of life that comes through him thank you god for that precious gift and for using us today we pray this in the name of our savior jesus christ amen i'm going to ask that you stand and sing this closing song of worship with us